Yeah, we, um, as those of that are, you that are part of DCC know, we're, we're just finishing a three-year ministry plan, and we've been doing a lot of work with some of you on thinking about where we want to go for the next three years. So we just presented to the uh, elders a proposed change to our mission statement. We have a great mission statement. It's one of the best there is. It's just that none of us can say it. That's one of the challenges we've had, and so we've reframed it along simple lines. As disciples of Jesus, our mission is to love, serve, and teach. That's a proposal that we've given to the elders and the staff, uh, and all of us have been part of it, of reworking that so it's something we can work with. So in August at our meeting that's coming up, our congregational meeting, we want to present to you a whole new three-year vision of where we're going in those three categories, loving, serving, and teaching. That involves us here at the church as well as those outside uh, of our church in the county. And um, I've just been thinking a lot about these two ladies in this ministry. This is one of the critical ministries. What, what I do is honestly not that significant. I help you learn something, but this is the future right here. I'm kind of at the tail end. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, well, you didn't need to say that. Yeah, I was going to actually <laughs> emphasize that. <laughs> the tailings the actually tailings would be perfect in this be area. perfect in our environment. And uh, Annika, I just want to say one of the things I've watched, this is my fifth amphitheater, by the way. We just completed four years here at the church, is I am so appreciative of the foundation. We have to have the deepest foundation I've ever seen in the church when it comes to our children's ministry, and that's, uh, you led that. I mean, I look at all these people, and I know a bunch of them have been involved in making that happen, but you led it. And so as we look to the future and start thinking where we're going for the next three years in those categories, uh, Julie, I, I love your zeal. The energy just flows off of you. <laughs> Physical, right? <laughs> and I love your administrative gifts that you're bringing to rethink that. So I just am grateful for both of you very That's much. Yeah. We'd like to stop and pray for you. Yep. What I want to do is I want to invite the elders, all of our elders and former elders, Hurriedly, to come on down. Hurriedly, come on. don't make us call you come three times. Come on, here we go. Come former elders, current elders, come on down. Both of you. Come on down. Oh, yeah, we have a bunch Kiddos, here. Kiddos, we're going to pray. So if you guys want to put your hands together, because we're going to pray for these two ladies. Look at that. They're all coming down. And it's your ministry we'll be praying for, which is a big deal. All right. No. It's okay. <laughs> all right. Very good. Come on in. We'll just lay hands. And Jim, you going to lead us? Go. Yes. Father, we are so grateful for these two women. Lord, when I look at all the ministries of our church, it didn't take me long to realize that what happens in our children's ministry is, is one of the deepest and core ministries that we have. Uh, I've watched now these children grow over the last four years. And um, their love for you, their love for their parents their inquisitiveness, their energy, and I, I personally have a lot of hope for the future when I look at our children. And uh, I know when I read the papers, sometimes it's, it, they tend to want us to be disheartened, but when I look in the eyes of these kids, I have a different perspective because of their, uh, their love for you. And um, that's a large part because of Annika. So we just want to lift up Annika to you in such a special way. And Lord, as she transitions to a new phase in both ministry and family life, we uh, have confidence that you will bless her. You will show her your grace in new and fresh ways. 
And um, you'll re-energize her. I'm sure she's tired after all these years, 147 years of ministry. <laughs> and um, so strengthen her and her family, bring them together, teach them about you in new and fresh ways. And as Julie steps into the role, Lord, thank you, first of all, for bringing her to us. What a treat. And uh, we all look forward to working with her and hearing her vision, her ideas. And as she takes this torch, it's so powerful of a torch, and carries us forward into the next few years. Thank you for her. So strengthen her and protect her family. Just like I pray for all of our staff and elders. Keep her safe, Lord, from the enemy, from the one that is trying to thwart all of our purposes. Keep her safe. Give her wisdom. And thank you that she's fit into the team so well. We enjoy her. So bless them both, bless their families, take care of them, and thanks for blessing us as a church. In your son's name we pray, amen. Amen. Let's give him a big hand again. Very good. Thank you, man. All right. The elders are going to get out of the way so that the kiddos, uh, just the parents of the kiddos, if you would stand up, please, parents of kiddos. Kiddos, if you look for your parents... See them, or if you prefer other parents that are better than yours, that's fine. Um, but whatever you do, go find your parents. Parents, definitely take your kids home. We don't want them afterwards. All right, the rest of you stand up now and say hello. Greet each other. Introduce yourself to somebody you don't know. Welcome them today. All right, very good. Also, um, we did not say thank you to Miss Courtney, Miss Jesse, Miss Lauren, who are leading oh, yeah. these wonderful kiddos. They're magicians. Thanks. You can be seated. By the way, I just was handed these by uh, a person who will remain unnamed, but his initials are Glenn Miller. Uh, these are five A Basin passes, and that are only good till the end of this season. So that's about twenty more minutes. <laughs> So if you want to uh, go get some fun and sun and, and hang out on the beach today and you'd like to use these lift tickets, then I'm going to put these up on the soundboard and put them in charge of, give Robert and John and, and Jason in charge of these, and then uh, that's very good. Now, it's all you, Jim. Go. Okay. It's all me. Can I have one more? Yeah. Okay. Can I have one more? Yeah. So oh this is a first no. with all the paddles in the front row. Give the paddles a, fr a big hand right there. Paddlers. Those look like kayak paddles. Those are not SCPs. That's what I thought. But that still is super fun. That's, uh, I've never seen anybody coming in. It doesn't happen up in the building very often either. So, <laughs> You know, every good story, uh, some of you have told stories to your children. Some of you have told them to your grandchildren. And uh, every good story has a twist. It has a moment where you're kind of caught off guard a little bit, where you're surprised by something that happens. 
And uh, the Bible has many, many stories, and they're all filled with these twists. In fact, we just finished a series while we were in the building um, where we looked at the word meanwhile, trouble brewing, where you have a story in the Bible, and then another story, you hear the word meanwhile, something happens, something emerges that you don't expect. Well, the entire story of the Bible is like that as well. The grand story from beginning to end is filled with these twists and turns and things you don't expect. For example, if you decided you were maybe perhaps a young Jewish family, you wanted to read the genealogies. They may not be important to you, but they are to Jewish people. And so you read, for example, out of Matthew. This is a genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. Now most of you are about to fall asleep. Those of you that are falling asleep don't know the story. Because if your children are raised with the stories of the Bible, here's what would happen. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Dad, dad, wait, wait a minute, daddy, wait a minute. Isn't Tamar a Canaanite woman? Ooh, a surprise. Jesus did not come from an eth ethnically pure line. What is a Canaanite woman doing in the story of Jesus? So the more you know the storyline, and we're going to look at several of these as you get down in there, the more you're going to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wasn't she a prostitute? Wait a minute. Wasn't she guilty of sin? Bathsheba? Huh. And so if you read these stories and you know the storyline, this is a story the Bible, the redemptive story that takes so many twists and turns. So today, we're going to start a new theme for the summer, for the five weeks that we're in the amphitheater. Sorry, it's only five. It's not our doing. They're getting ready to tear this whole thing down and rebuild it. So we get five weeks together here, and we'll be back in the building. But we're going to, I'm calling it On the Edge. I want you to picture a cliff. Here's a cliff, and redemptive history goes right up to the edge. And if God does not intervene, it goes off the cliff and Jesus is never born. You see, we've done a fantastic job of teaching you the stories of the Bible without necessarily telling you why they're important. So I asked a bunch of you, tell me about the story of Ruth. Why is it important? And it's hard to answer that question. Tell me about the story of Esther. Why is that important? Hard to answer the question. One of the things that they have in common, the stories we're going to look at, is they come right up to the edge of the cliff, and if God does not intervene, then redemptive history falls off the cliff. Jesus is never born. We're going to look at one of those today. It's in Genesis 38. It's the story of Judah and Tamar. Judah and Tamar. It's, uh, some of you may be saying, who on earth is that? Well, just by way of introduction, let me, let me prepare you for the story the ethics of the ancient world are not the same as the ethics of today. You're going to see that in this story today, okay? Don't want you to be bothered by it. Uh, we're not going to get into the ethics of what happened and how 
they kind of manipulate the relationships. We could talk about that sometime uh, if you want, privately. We're just going to go through it. What I'm interested in is you seeing what God did. Because the story of the Bible is the God using, God using people's lives. He's using people's sinfulness. He's using people's attempts to circumvent, manipulate, control, do all the things that we do to accomplish his purposes, his mission. He is going to accomplish his mission. You can't stop that. And so when we get into the story, it's going to be some things that are a little ethically sensitive for us because we would not think this way. Just hang in there. At the end of Genesis 37, it says, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Beginning of chapter 39, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. So the whole story that we're in the middle of the context of, we're in the middle of the story of Joseph. And then all of a sudden in chapter 38, right in the middle, at that time Judah left his brothers. So this seems like a, uh, an unexpected part of the story. In fact, there's a lot of scholars that say that this is not really part of the Genesis because the storyline is moving along and all of a sudden we've got this right turn or this left turn. But I actually think it's very critical to the whole story. And we're going to look at that in just a minute and we'll see why. What we're going to do is we're going to take a look at Judah's character. And you see back in 37, it says, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. And he's giving us the Jacob's family line. And he starts right away with Joseph. It's very common to do that. Start with the children. Your children reveal a lot about your family, don't they? Uh, I've, you've heard me say many times, I fool you up here Sunday after Sunday. You want to know what I'm really like? Call one of my four kids. <laughs> you have my permission to do it. I'll give you the phone numbers. They would love to tell you about me. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. <laughs> they would love to tell you the truth about what I'm really like. But that's what you'd find out what's really happening. So when we get to chapter 38, we have a story of Judah. Right off the bat, at that time, Judah. Now, mystery enters the picture here. Because you see, Judah was the fourth son of Jacob. By this time in the story, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, numbers one, two, and three, had already distanced themselves and offended their father and were pretty much out of the picture. So as Genesis unfolds, we're taking a look at this family line, these 12 sons, because God had made a promise to Abraham. And the promise was really simple. Through you, I'm going to bless all the nations. And so uh, these 12 sons are part of that promise. God is somehow going to bless all the nations through these 12 sons. But as the story unfolds, these 12 sons don't turn out to be very good, actually. In fact, they're kind of a lot like you. We all sin, don't we? We all fail God. And so one at, one at a time, they fall out of the story. So Reuben, Simeon, Levi. So we come to the fourth son. And what's, what are we going to find out about the fourth son? Well, here's what it says. At that time, Judah, the fourth son, left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Abdullam named Hirah. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite woman named Shua, and he married her. He married her, had kids with her. All right, there's, there's several things wrong with this. You didn't leave your family. 
That's abandonment. That's offensive. You just didn't do that. So he's already on the road to follow in the footsteps of the older three brothers. And not only did he leave his family, but he went to the very people that God said, don't go to. Don't intermarry with the Canaanites. They don't believe in, their, they don't believe in me. They have their own God, Baal. And so he left, and he went to the Canaanites, the very thing God said not to do, and he married a Canaanite woman, the very thing God said not to do. So right off the bat, we can see that Judah's character is in trouble. So his wife, she became pregnant, verse 3, gave birth to a son. His name was Er. She conceived again and gave birth to a son. His name was Onan. She gave birth to still another son. His name was Shelah. So she has three sons. Verse 6, Judah got a wife for Er, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. Ooh. We're back in Matthew. Tamar enters the picture. We don't know anything about her other than she's Canaanite. But Er's firstborn was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. So her husband's now done. So then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. Um, that sounds strange to us, doesn't it? That we would say, if, my, if, if I die, Nancy would be expected to marry one of my brothers. Okay, that's just so bizarre to us. It feels so strange. It doesn't fit within our world. And yet, this is part of the uh, ancient Near Eastern customs. In fact, a little bit later after this, in Deuteronomy, this became codified in the law. Deuteronomy 25. Um, verse 5. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law. The first son she bears shall carry the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Our names are important. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, my brother's husband's brother refuses to carry out his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of the town shall summon this man and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I don't want to marry her, his brother's widow should go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of the sandals, spit in his face, love it, and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. So he gets to spit in his face because he's dishonored her. Now, the sense of honor that they had in this world are very different than the sense of honor we have today. And you didn't have a lot of options. So, so Judah's doing what's right. He said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife, fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law, raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was evil, wicked, so the Lord put him to death also. Wow, two of your three sons are now gone. If you were the third boy, you'd be a little nervous. Or if you were the dad. So Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son, Shelah, grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. She's a widow. She's dressed as a widow. She'll dress as a widow from now on until she's remarried. 
And so she has to wait until the young son grows up so he can fulfill the duty to bring honor to her. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira, the Abdullamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she shook off, took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, sat down at the entrance to the town on the road to Timnah, for she saw that though Sheila had now grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. She knew that no chance. She's older now. The young brother's grown up. And she just gets to live out her days as a widow. That's not right. That's not fair. It's not fair to her. In her world, that is absolutely not fair. Because her honor does not have any opportunity to be restored. So what does she do? When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. Well, can I remember where we started at the story? We read Matthew, and your children are saying, Wait a minute, how did this Canaanite get into the line of Christ? We're reading the story of redemptive history is right on the edge. And watch what God does. He always, always turns sin into goodness, into good things. So she says, well, if I sleep with you, what are you going to give me? He said, I'll send you a young goat from my flock. I have no idea what that was worth at the time, but it's worth something. So she said, well, uh, you got to give me something as a pledge until you send it. I'm just going to sleep with you. How do I know you're going to fulfill your duty? So he says, uh, what pledge should I give you? She says, give me your seal and your cord. Now, these were personal identity markers. This would be the same in today's world to say, give me your credit card and your driver's license. Same thing. The, 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 the cord and the seal, that's how he, when he wrote a letter, he would put wax on the seal and he'd seal it with his, with his uh, rubber stamp, okay? That was his personal seal with his identity. And she said, give me those two things. Give me your credit card. Give me your driver's license. I love this story. So he gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant. After she left, she took off her veil, put on her widow's clothes again. So meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulonite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but she wasn't there. So he asked all the men who lived around her, where's the shrine prostitute uh, beside the road here? And they said, what are you talking about? There's never been a prostitute here. There's not one. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here at all. Then Judah said, well... Let her keep what she has or we'll become a laughing stock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but she didn't find her. So I did my part to fulfill the duty, and uh, let's move on with life. Three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. 
So Judas said, bring her out and have her burned to death. Wow. Life has just gotten really bad for her. Do you see the hypocrisy in this story? That's the way it was. That's the way it was in the ancient world. And we wonder why Jesus needed to come. It's amazing. We see it in our own. All you got to do is read the press. We see hypocrisy all the time, don't we, here in our own country? We see it all the time. This is why Jesus needed to come. Bring her out and have her burned to death. It doesn't say this in the text, but judging from her actions, I think that uh, um, when it says Judah was told, I think Tamar orchestrated that. She's setting him up because he's not doing right by her. And so she says, let's make sure my father-in-law knows I'm pregnant. So she waits three months, so it becomes a little obvious. And that's what happens. So as she's being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, and guess what? She produces the cord and the seal. She says, see if you recognize who these belong to. So Judah recognized him and, he, and said, she is more righteous than I. Okay, up until now, Judah's character has been moving completely in the wrong direction, just like his three brothers, right? His three brothers continued on that journey and uh, are taken out of the picture. But Judah, at this point in the story, says she is more righteous than I we began to experience the first turnaround in his life. God got in his face. That's what happens. She's more righteous than I since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila. He did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them held out his hand, put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on the wrist and said, this one came out first. But then he drew back his hand. His brother came out, and she said, so this is how you have broken out. So she named him Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and she named him Zerah. Okay, now listen again to Matthew. And you're about to learn how a Canaanite made it into the line of Christ. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, I don't think it's appropriate for us to question too much about her ethics and her actions. In our world today, we would have a lot of questions about that. But in her world, she did what she had to do to preserve her honor because her father-in-law refused to step up and do what was right by the customs of the day. And so I personally give her a lot of slack. Um, as a woman in this part of the world, in your property, you didn't have any options available to you. This says something about incredible courage that she would put her life on the line. And that's what she did to preserve her honor. I don't know. I don't have any indication that she had a sense of the long-term perspective of this, that she had a special calling by God. I think she's just preserving her honor. She's doing what she has to do to protect that. And I respect that. But when you stand back and you look at the grand story we're able to see many, many, many years down the road, we're sitting right on the cliff. We're sitting right on the cliff. Because this is part of God's mission. 
she reveals that he's, uh, he re she reveals that God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham because right away, God is coming to the Canaanites. Maybe only one, but they're Canaanites. And now those two boys are mixed, mixed race children. And they're in the line of Christ, one of them is. And so we see God fulfilling his promise. This is not by accident. Things don't happen. God doesn't react to our sin. It's not like we sin and God steps back and says, oh, mm, mm, what am I going to do now? No, no, no. He already sees all that. That's what sovereignty is. The definition of sovereignty, the classic definition is God knows all real and possible options. And so he makes his decisions knowing what's going to happen. So this is one of those places where this is not by accident. This is because of sin, and God takes advantage of it. So we learned some things from this that actually relate to us today. Number one, Tamar is the one that secured Judah's honor. He's heading in the wrong direction, and, and God used her intervention to turn him back so that he, he has the honor of giving birth to ultimately the Messiah, Jesus. Who's in your life that God is using to turn you back? It's often somebody you're not very comfortable with. It's often somebody who makes you a laughing stock, as in this case. That's what Judah said. Let it go, or we're going to become the laughing stock of all these people. And that's who God used to turn him back and restore his honor. So who's in your life right now? Who is it? Don't look where you expect. Don't look at the people that look nice. Look at the people that run the risk of embarrassing you, shaming you. Another thing we learn is that God fulfills his promise. You see, Paul's going to say a long time later after this in Galatians 3 that God preached the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, that in him all the nations would be blessed. And here's one of those early indications. He goes after a young Canaanite woman. He's fulfilling his promise even at the beginning. You can have confidence that God loves this entire creation. That's the gospel message. That's the fantastic good news in a world that's just broken. Don't be deceived by the illusion. You all have friends here in this county, and they all struggle, don't they? Even the ones that pretend not to, trust me, I spend a lot of time with those people. They do. That's God's promise. He loves every human on the planet. My personal theology is that that's the nature of the gospel. He is actively going after every human and doing everything he can short of violating your free will to get you to turn to him. And we see that happening right here. And the final thing, hope this encourages you, is that God uses sinful people to fulfill his purposes. Or as, Paul, uh, as Mark likes to say, uses knuckleheads. By the way, that's all of you. Okay, me too. That's all of us. God is going to fulfill his mission. And so not all of us have the benefit and the privilege of being on the edge of redemptive history like this, this couple did, but yet we are still part of God's mission. We are on some cliff somewhere every time we sin. 
it may not be redemptive history, but it could be the redemptive history of someone in our life. Where redemptive history is about to fall off the cliff if we sin. Because God wants to use us. And so God turns our sin into something righteous so that somebody else can benefit from it. Does that make sense? Now, I don't want you to go out there and start sinning. That's not the goal. Don't hear that. And don't hear that it's okay to sin. It's not okay to sin. Okay, God is going to glorify himself whether you sin or not. It's just a whole lot more joyful if you choose not to sin. You get the benefit of the joy as well as the glory of watching God work. When you sin, God's still going to get the glory. He still is. He's just going to find creative ways to use your sin to make that happen. That's the series that we're in, On the Edge. We live on the edge all the time. We are always one step, one step from falling off the cliff. Aren't we? I'm so glad we serve a God who knows how to keep us on the cliff. Father, thank you. Thank you for, thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for um, Tamar's courage to step in. And now that you've secured, secured Judah's honor, we can get back to the story of Joseph and see what happened, how you revealed your glory. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for using us in spite of our sin and because of our sin. And thanks for glorifying yourselves in our lives, even when we do sin. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Could he ask the ushers to come take the offering? Um, by the way, you heard uh, Mark say, we set a record this week. We had 5,000 kids coming out of our ears. I don't know the, the number. All I know is I was there and they were everywhere.